This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Prime Spark, the podcast that brings you conversations that inspire, celebrate, and empower women over 55. The second women's revolution is here, and it is time for us to fuel a spark that will ignite your way forward, illuminate your path, and reflect your gifts in the world. Now, here is your host for Prime Spark, Sarah Hart. Hi, and welcome to Prime Spark. I'm Sarah Hart, and I'm so happy you're here with us. Prime Spark is designed for women over 55 or close to help us all live our happiest, most fulfilling lives now and in the future. The mission of Prime Spark is to change the way our society sees and treats older women. That's a big mission, which only means we all need to be involved and we need to get started now. And today I have the great pleasure of talking with Susan Douglas, a woman whose work and writing I greatly admire. Susan J. Douglas is a professor at the University of Michigan. She is the author of many books, including the acclaimed In Our Prime, How Older Women Are Reinventing the Road Ahead, and Editor's Choice Staff Picks by the New York Times. The Rise of Enlightened Sexism, How Pop Culture Took Us from Girl Power to Girls Gone Wild. The Mommy Myth, The Idealization of Motherhood and How It Undermines Women. Where the Girls Are, Growing Up Female with the Mass Media, and many more. She has lectured at colleges and universities around the country and has written for the New York Times, The Nation, The Village Voice, Ms., The Washington Post, TV Guide, and was media critic for The Progressive from 1992 to 1998. She can be found frequently on TV and radio, including The Today Show, The CBS Early Show, The Oprah Winfrey Show, NPR's Fresh Air Weekend Edition, and various radio talk shows around the country. Where the Girls Are was widely praised and chosen as one of the top 10 books of 1994 by National Public Radio, Entertainment Weekly, and the McLaughlin Group. She served on the board of the George Foster Peabody Awards from 2005 to 2010, and in 2010 was selected as chair of the board. She is a 2009 recipient of the Leonardo da Vinci Prize, the highest honor given by the Society for the History of Technology to an individual who has greatly contributed to the history of technology through research, teaching, publication, and other activities. Welcome, Susan. I'm so happy you're here today. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Let's just get started by um, my asking you, do you experience getting older? And if so, what is that experience? And if not, why is it that you think you don't? 
you know, I do experience it and I don't. It's, uh, you know, it's a kind of a contradictory feeling. I think like many women of our age, um, if we're lucky enough to be healthy, um, we typically feel 15 to 20 years younger than we are. Um, you, you know, when I had a recent birthday and somebody asked me how old I was, it was it was like odd to say it because I felt I literally felt 20 years younger, you know, and, and um, you know, I'm still working. I'm still writing. I'm a very active person. But, you know, there are aches and pains. There are um, desperately sad losses of people you've known for 40 and 50 years. So I find myself kind of whipsawed between feeling older and not feeling older. That is a wonderful way to put it, Susan. I have um, I've asked, oh, oh, I don't know, over 100 women now that question. And I, I need to go back and count, but I'll bet you at least 90% of the women I've asked that question say something like you've just said. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you know, I have some aches and pains. I can't do in the same way everything I did, but I may be doing other things. Um, but other than that, I feel more of who I am. I, I feel mm-hmm. I don't feel my age. Um, so, you know, in different kinds of ways, we all are saying the same thing. And it's it's just time for our society to catch up on that realization that this is who we are. Well, you know, I think some of the reason that we say we don't feel our age is because there are such outdated, antiquated notions of what it means to be an older person and an older woman. And uh, obviously, you know, uh, baby boom women and those who um, preceded them a little bit and those who were following them generationally, you know, we are the healthiest generation of of older women ever. And so it's not surprising that we don't see ourselves as like granny and the Beverly Hillbillies, you know, Um, (laughs) you know, we don't see ourselves as these, you know, the the sign, you know, for elderly people crossing where there are two hunched over people with a cane. These are just such antiquated, uh, you know, depictions and stereotypes of what older people are like. And so, uh, of course, we don't want to conform to those stereotypes, but they don't resonate with us. Yeah. I mean, they don't, they don't depict who we are. Exactly. They just, they just don't. I don't know. I'm sure you've seen this Um, on uh, LinkedIn recently, there was um, an outrage um, article about the, the 100 days that young little kids at school go dressed up as old people. Have you seen those pictures? No, I have oh, not. It is wonderful. It might, I'm not, I'm not going to say who it was because I'm not sure who it was, but um, there are, I didn't, we didn't do this when I was in school, but apparently on the 100th day of something, maybe when the 100th day that the kid is in school or something, I don't know. Um, they're invited to, come dressed as a hundred year old or as an old person. And they all come with canes and walkers. And so we're inculcating 
grade school kids with what it means to be older. Absolutely. And we've been doing it, um, whether through, you know, school events like that, we've been doing it for decades through the media. Yes. Decades. Yes. Speaking of the media, (laughs) I have one of the favorite chapters in your wonderful book, In Our Prime. You don't have this book. My women friends out there, you need to go get it. It is a magnificent book. And one of the chapters that I find both very funny and very infuriating is the aging industrial complex. Could you explain what you mean by that and then talk about it a bit? Yeah, uh, it's called the anti-aging industrial complex. And it refers to spas, um, cosmetic surgery procedures, the 8 trillion cosmetic, you know, treatments and everything out there, all of which are designed to make us feel phobic about aging. And we are told repeatedly that the one thing we must do about aging is defy it as if you can defy an ineluctable biological process that begins from the moment you're born. And I just, you know, I have gone to Sephora many, many times with my adult daughter. And yes, we have, uh, you know, pre-pandemic dropped the equivalent of a car payment there. And, (laughs) you know, there are the bleachers and bleachers of all of these products calling out to you, buy me, I'll make you look 10 years younger, yada, 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 you know, and none of them do. Um, And I, I just wanted to take it on because on the one hand, I think like many women, maybe most women, I'm a sucker for stuff like that. You know, I'm a sucker for some claim that some skin cream is going to make my skin feel better, look better. And on the other hand, I know completely that none of this stuff works. You know, I mean, the best anti-aging thing is to start putting sunscreen on your face, you know, when you're young. Now, when I was young, sunscreen was Johnson's baby oil. So, you know, which is like the worst thing you could do. With iodine. With iodine. Absolutely. Yeah. You can't forget the iodine. And so I I began to do some research on this because I, I found some of the claims of some of the ingredients that they put in, like licorice allegedly, you know, halts the advance of wrinkles, or there's something um, that is nicknamed vomit fruit that supposedly, if it's in, you know, some anti-aging product, it will, you know, forestall the aging process. And I just had fun going through it because it was like these companies were on a, you know, horticultural hunt for like the latest thing they could claim would, you know, stop aging. And of course, then I, you know, began to do some research on this. And of course, none of this stuff works. And various of these um, claims by certain companies like L'Oreal, for example, um, have been yanked before the FTC and say, 
yank those ads because uh, you can't back them up. Some of them are saying, oh, we'll gen- genetically modify your skin. Well, that's making a scientific claim that can't be backed up. Um, so I did have a lot of fun writing it and kind of cruising the shelves at Sephora and jotting down which ones claimed which, you know, like, you know, the skins of red grapes would do X. And so I, I had fun with it, but it also is infuriating, Sarah. You're totally right, because, you know, we're being urged to spend hundreds of dollars Um you know, a month on some of this stuff. I mean, you know, there's some little tiny jar of something that's 0.002 ounces selling for $78 or $125. And, you know, really when Nivea, I think will probably do the trick. (laughs) So, Or I um, think my mother used ponds. Ponds, absolutely. I used to use ponds in in the olden days. You talk to a dermatologist and they're like, give me a break. They're like, get CeraVe or get Nivea, you know, over the counter CVS, $4.99. There's a decimal point between the four and the nine. Yes, (laughs) that's important in this. (laughs) Well, I love it because, um, I mean, we can, you're you're right in, in what you said, that we can all see ourselves in this. And and what I find fascinating is that I am a sucker some of the time for it. And I will find myself reading about something and then going to see if I can find it or, or, or going on Amazon, seeing if they sell it on Amazon so I don't have to buy it through an Internet um, Facebook ad that I don't trust or whatever. Um, and I know my, my logical mind knows this is total crap, and this is a waste of my money. But the messages we've gotten are so strong that you, you must try to fight your wrinkles. Do anything you can to do that. And I can think of that logically as being, you know, I, whoever said I worked hard for these wrinkles. You know, and it, but it. It's the strength of the messages we've gotten. And it's it's distressing. Just think about how brilliant it is as as a marketing strategy, right? Right. Uh, You make people terrified of something they cannot avoid. Right. The only way you avoid it is something worse than getting older, Right. right? And so you start developing a market. I know young women in their 20s and 30s who are like doing all this anti-aging stuff, beautiful, healthy, young women. But it's, it's you have an ever-replenishing market of decades worth of women who have been made to feel um, not only terrified of aging, but also it's your fault. If you don't do something about it, you're not being disciplined. You're being lazy. You're not taking advantage of the latest technology, you know, with these products that sound like they're a cross between something designed by NASA and, you know, and an organic, you know, uh, botanist. So um, it's just a brilliant campaign. And of course, it seduces us. Of course it does. Um, But I have to tell you, after um, after writing that chapter and then finishing the book, I was like, 
okay, that's it. Nivea, it is. <laughs> Good for you. So, I mean, we all know, again, in our logical minds, we all know, as somebody said, and I think it's brilliant, anti-aging is like anti-breathing. And, but how do we how do we counteract those messages, Susan? I mean, they're ubiquitous. You look through any women's magazine and not, they're, they're, it's, a, it's changing a tiny bit, but mostly there are 20 something women who even they are airbrushed and they look absolutely gorgeous. And that's what we're supposed to look at, look like when we're 60, 70, 80. And that's just absurd. Yeah, it is. And, you know, of all of the isms out there, sexism, racism, you know, ageism is the one thing that like you can't escape. You know, it applies. It can apply to everybody. However, it applies much more punishingly to women. And, you know, to get back to something you just hinted at a minute ago, I do think we are at a turnstile moment where we are seeing more older women, um, not as many as we'd like, but we're seeing more older women in public office. We're seeing more older women uh, in entertainment media. I mean, Judy Dench is still in movies. Love you know? Judy <laughs> uh, uh, Grace and Frankie, huge hit. You know, Nancy Pelosi, 80 years old. Maxine Waters, you know, we are seeing more older women in public life uh, and on the screens of America. And while there are many women in journalism, particularly television journalism, who get forced out once they hit 50 or so, and they're replaced by some model ready, you know, gorgeous 30 year old woman. And that is infuriating. Um and deeply unfortunate, but we are seeing a f- more older women hanging in there, you know, as television uh, reporters. So I, I, there is beginning to be some real pushback among famous women, but also everyday women who are refusing to be put out to pasture, insisting upon being um public figures in their lives. Now, a lot of this, of course, was completely upended. You know, here's my advice to any author. Don't publish a book and have the launch date be the beginning of a global pandemic. (laughs) Just my gratuitous advice. So, you know, and we'll talk about this a little later on. You know, I was really advocating in the book at the end of the book about the importance of older women and younger women getting together and comparing notes and talking about what matters to the different generations, because we do have our generationally different issues, um, but we also have powerfully overlapping uh, and reinforcing issues as well. And I do think it's very important for older women like us to reassure younger women that getting older is not scary. It's actually, there's enormous amount of rewards to it, enormous amount of pleasures to being older. I mean, I find now, you know, (laughs) don't mess with me. You know, I'm not 22 years old anymore where I care, you know, and 
um, a lot of studies show that women in their 60s and 70s are actually happier than women in their 20s. You know, we have incredibly fulfilling um, personal lives of family and friendship. Many of us have wonderful accomplishments that we relish uh, and uh, want to build upon. Many of us are active in our communities as volunteers, as workers. You know, there are all kinds of pleasures and rewards that we need to assure younger women lie ahead for them, even if they might have bags under their eyes after a while, you know, right. which they will have, probably. which they will. <laughs> yeah. Talk to Susan, talk about that, because one of my other favorite chapters is chapter seven. Lifespan feminism, bridge groups and the road ahead. Would you would you mind reading just a little bit at the beginning of that chapter? Because I think it's a wonderful chapter. Sure, I'd be happy to. Today, women of a certain age feel ourselves to be at another turnstile moment. We're poised between outdated norms that seek to render us irrelevant, voiceless, and invisible, and our own widening rebellion against such strictures. We are rejecting acquiescence and inequality, and instead are claiming our right to be seen, heard, and respected in the world. So much in our media and culture tell us the main thing we should feel about being older is shame, especially because we are women and we are constantly judged over how we look. The media also erase from view women who cannot afford to personify the ideals of aspirational aging, buttressing the notion that most older women do not matter at all. That I love. I love that. I love that. Um, would you talk a little about any of that that you want, but particularly those bridge groups? Because um, I think that is, a, that is new thinking. And I think that it is really exciting and a potential that any of us could do in our communities in one way or another. So there are two terms that I've put in the book. One is lifespan feminism. And what I mean by that is feminism does not end when you are 50 years old. And uh, we need to embrace and advance feminism from the time we're little girls until we go to the great rock concert in the sky. Feminism matters as much for women over 50 as it does for women under 50. There are overlapping issues, but also different issues. And, you know, there's been a major war <clears throat> against older women. People don't think of it that way. They think, oh, you know, they're trying to cut, um, you know, Medicare. They're trying to cut Social Security. You know, it's against old people. Well, yeah, sure, it's against old people. But guess, guess who lives longer? Guess who's more reliant uh, on many of those programs, it's older women. So <clears throat> that's what I mean by lifespan feminism. Now, bridge clubs, and I am in a very privileged position because I'm a college professor. And so, you know, I get to meet 
young people and work with young people all the time and young women. And there's a powerful connection, you know, between them and me and them and some of the older female professors on campus. You know, they're starting out and they're they're scared and they're anxious. And what can I accomplish? And they look at me and my colleagues and they're like, oh, you've accomplished so much. How did you get there? You know, and we know some of what their issues are, but we don't know all of them. You know, they're they're growing up in a very different time. It's a very <clears throat> fragile time between climate change, you know, and now this horrible war, um, <clears throat> you know, anxieties about resources, anxieties about partisan divides in our country, They it, anxieties about uh, race and sexuality, all of the, the there are powerful things affecting them that have affected us and do affect us as well. And then we have issues that primarily affect us. I think to strengthen feminism in this country, to strengthen women's voices, we have to talk to each other and we have to build alliances. And again, during the pandemic, it was like, oh, great. You know, I have this message in the book and then you can't, you know, everybody's locked down, but we're crawling out of it now. And, you know, I think the initiative uh, needs to come from older women and it's really easy. Uh, Everybody knows somebody who is in there a woman who is in her 20s or 30s or 40s. It can be a child. It can be a niece. It can be a friend, you know, of one of your adult children. It can be somebody, you know, through a volunteer group or whatever. And I think, you know, maybe two older women invite two younger women and you go get a cup of coffee or better yet, a glass of wine (laughs) and, you know, talk to each other. What are the issues facing you as a younger woman? What are the issues facing you as an older woman? What do we have in common? What kind of organizations do we see out there that um, we can connect with? You know, often they can be local organizations, um, which are often more effective these days than national ones. But I do think that young women need and want to hear from us. And I think we need and want to hear from them. Agree a hundred percent. I just, I love it. Um, and I'm so sorry this, that came out right at the beginning of the <laughs> pandemic. Christmas. <laughs> so that was published in 2020 and now we're in 2022. Have you seen in those two years, any positive movement um, or not? I mean, are we pretty much in the same place? Are things changing at all? Um, what do you What do you see? Well, listen. The pandemic was very, very, very hard on um, people of color and women, and particularly uh, caregiver women, um, mothers trying to you know hold down jobs and watch their kids. You know, this was a it was a differentially impacting pandemic. It was also absolutely lethal for older people in, you know, 
care centers and in nursing homes where the response was slow. People are in very close you know, proximity to each other. But having said that, you know, at the at the beginning of the pandemic, because there was this devastation of, um, you know, of of people in in nursing homes and, and care centers, the initial impression was that the disease primarily uh, affected older Americans. And there was a lot of ageist stuff out there, you know, Um, let them die. You know, I mean, it was pretty awful. Of course, then as as things evolved, uh, we learned that this horrible disease affects people of all ages. And in fact, people who got this disease in their 30s and 40, some of them have had incredibly, you know, long-term COVID. So at the beginning of the pandemic, it seemed like, oh, you know, <clears throat> only older people suffer from, the, from this, who cares? Then by the, once the vaccines came out, then there were these awful media depictions of older people, you know, being the first in line to get the vaccine, hogging them up so that younger people couldn't get them. There was a terrible story in the New York Times, front page of the Times, about, oh, all these older people are going out, they're going to restaurants, they're going out dancing, they're having a good time, while younger people, you know, are can't even get a vaccine, you know, like bl- blaming older people. And then there was a, a Saturday night uh, live skit called Boomers Get the Vax. If you haven't seen it, I commend it to your attention and not for good reasons, but for bad reasons. And as I am, I am a big fan of SNL, but SNL, Stephen Colbert, a bunch of these. I love Stephen Colbert as well. But there's a lot of ageist humor and ageist jokes out there. So the first part of my answer is things were pretty terrible during the pandemic. At the same time, there have been very important media exposés about the differential, unequal effect, impact of this horrible disease on women, on mothers, on women of color, um, you know, on, on vulnerable older women, not in care homes, but isolated, you know, for whatever reason. And, you know, whether we're going to be able to do anything about that, given the, um, you know, arterial sclerosis of our, you know, political system. But, um, you know, and also we have begun to see um, older women. I especially see older women as commentators on MSNBC. And um, as journalists and commentators, and they're not necessarily talking about what it's like to be an older woman. They're just they're just, you know, public affairs experts. So, again, the turnstile, you know, keeps pushing and pulling. And, you know, we've got to push it towards more equity and visibility and equality for older women. I find one of the really interesting things when um just a lot of what you just said, but one of the things recently I have been pointing out to some older people about um, how ageist our society is. And like with, for example, greeting cards, 
that are funny, quote unquote. And so I talk about that and they look at me and not they don't understand what I'm talking about some of the time. We are so ingrained with ageism that we don't even see it. Um, and so I've said to them, you know, we would not make racial comments like that anymore. We just wouldn't do it. We wouldn't even usually make sexist comments like that anymore, but we still make ageist comments. But it's it is it's on the horizon, but it is it is not here quite yet. And so so Susan, what's what's ahead for you? What are what dreams have you not yet realized and and what's next now that we are hopefully coming out of the pandemic? Well, I'm still enjoying my teaching, which I um, uh, love very much. And it's interesting, you know, I never used to teach about ageism in the media. I do our, our big introductory course, you know, it's the history of the media up to the present. And, you know, it's advertising, public relations, the news, all of this. And there's a whole section on media and identity. And so for years, I've done stuff on race, racism in the media, as well as, um, anti-racism in the media, you know, the images of women. Well, you know, for the past, what now, I don't know, five years, maybe I've done a whole lecture on ageism in the media. You know, it blows my students away because they have never thought about it. And at the end of the semester, they have to write a take-home exam about which concepts really struck them. And ageism is so frequently mentioned because they hadn't thought about it. So obviously I want to keep doing that. Um, I, you know, I, uh, I have a bunch of, I have a memoir that about travel. I've done a lot of travel and I love to travel. And um, I have this memoir about a particular trip my husband and I took in 1984. And my agent was like, I, I can't sell that. <laughs> Who wants to read about your summer vacation? So I need to tear it apart and put it back together again around thematically oriented essays. And that's a challenge. Um, I don't know if I'll be able to do it or not, uh, but um, I'm, I'm looking forward to giving that a shot. And I'm actually working on a big intellectual history of my field, which has been um, really fun. I'm inter interviewing a lot of people, many of them in their 70s and early 80s, about the founding of media studies. Because back in the 1950s and 60s, the notion that any self-respecting academic would study the mass media, that you know, it was a completely, you know, beneath contempt. I mean, why would you study an industry and content featuring, you know, my favorite Martian and, <laughs> you know, a, a Mr. at a talking horse, all of this stuff. But my generation of scholars thought that if 40 million people were watching something the same night at the same time, it was important to figure out what messages were in those broadcasts? What was going on in the news? Uh, why were we all seduced by Glamour magazine, for example? So um, it's been really fun and interesting to see what the deep concerns were of people who started media studies and what their concerns about the media were. So that's what I'm working on right now. 
Oh, that's fun. Oh, yeah, that's it is really fun. Good. It's that's unfinished fun. business. I hope I get to finish it. <laughs> yeah, I do too. I do too. Oh, Susan, this has been fantastic. If if somebody wanted to get in touch with you, just because they absolutely have to know more about something or whatever, um, what's the easiest way to do that? I have a website. Uh, it's Susan Susan J Douglas dot com. Um, pretty straightforward, all lowercase. And anytime I get a web inquiry, um, I respond to it. Great. Thank you. So that's our time today. Please join us again. You can find out about Prime Spark at www.primesparkwomen.com. Thank you so much to my guest, Susan Douglas. It's been such a joy talking to her. And don't forget, you can find out about her at Susan J. Douglas, S-U-S-A-N-J-D-O-U-G-L-A-S.com. Come back again. See us again. Thank you for being here today. Spread tolerance and love. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on Prime Spark. With each episode, Sarah Hart brings you conversations that inspire, celebrate, and empower women over 55. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes about remarkable, experienced women, go to EWNpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. The second women's revolution is here, and we hope that you use the insights you've gained here to fuel the spark that will ignite your way forward, illuminate your path, and reflect your gifts in the world. Have you ever asked yourself this question, why is it so hard to make a buck? (laughs) I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com.
Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.